The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Checking the resume, two thumbs down is what they say. Hello, hello. You are back inside the chat room on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are podcasting every minute of this show. It will be available minutes after the show airs. You can check those out at KUCI.org. Click on archive, scroll down to podcasts. As I mentioned last week, you need to do this through your Firefox browser. The Safari browser has been giving us some trouble. So if you're having uh, difficulty accessing us, check us out through the Firefox browser. But all of our shows are up there and available for your listening pleasure. I am back with my co-host, Dana. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I am your host, Marie Stone, and we are on today with Michael Gilbert. Michael Gilbert is the author of The Disposable Male. He was born and raised in Montreal, where he attended Concordia University and concluded his formal education with a graduate degree at Harvard. His multifaceted career includes positions as university lecturer, a research analyst, investment consultant, real estate executive, independent film producer. Uh, He's had an abiding interest in social and gender philosophies that first emerged uh, in the 60s and 70s. Those perspectives continue to impact our lives and generate lively debate. Uh, He has sorted through some of those issues in the Disposable Mail. It's my huge pleasure to welcome him today. Hi, Michael. Hi. Hi. So let's uh, let's start out by giving you a chance to talk a little bit about kind of the, the scope of the book and uh, what inspired you to take this subject on and uh, tell us a little bit about what's in there, what we'll find. Okay. Well, the scope of the book is, is really important because it's, it's really an attempt to look at our modern world through the eyes of an evolutionist. And in the first half of the book, um, about 120 pages, we, we go all the way from the Big Bang to the little bang that ended uh, World War II, in other words, up to the current day. And, and the, uh, the undertaking is really to give the reader a, a sense of uh, how a Darwinian uh, outlook develops, what it, what it means to, to have a, a philosophy about life based on in nature, biology, uh, and, uh, and genetics. And in the second half of the book, we turn what I hope uh, is a sort of a POV that I've been able to uh, deliver to the, to the reader. We turn that 
that perspective on modern relationships. And we look at uh, men and women and family and work and kids and those important things through this lens, the lens of a Darwinian or a, a, an evolutionist. And uh, the subtitle of the, of the book, uh, The Disposable Male, is, is Sex, Love, and Money, Your World Through Darwin's Eyes. And so and I was inspired to write it, actually, because um, of the struggles I went through myself in defining what masculinity meant as I came out of uh, my university at that stage of my life and confronted the notion that my masculinity was a social construct. And it, it occurred to me that there was something much more profound going on about the sexes and what masculinity was and what femininity was. And this set me out on a, a really a long-term uh, avocational interest in, in getting the answers. And for me, a lot of the answers emerged in the thinking of the uh, sort of evolutionists that, that came around with uh, sociobiology in the mid-late 70s at Harvard through E.O. Wilson. And uh, these, these seem to me to be helpful, uh, helpful perspective in terms of understanding uh, why, uh, by way of example, male sexual uh, stimulus can be so shallow as opposed to a deeper, more relationship-oriented uh, sexuality or intimacy that women seem to gravitate towards. And along came a book a few years ago uh, called uh, Women Are From Venus, Men Are From Cleveland. I'm, I'm joking, but it, 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 Men Are From Mars. And John Gray, in the introduction to the book, says, I'm not going to tell you what the differences are between men and women. I'm, I'm, uh, why the, the differences are there. I'm just going to tell you what the differences are. And so he says something like, men want to get at the sex part in a hurry, and women want to you know, feel things out a little bit. And, and we know that, but it doesn't say why. And the why, of course, is that men, women get pregnant. And even though we today have very sophisticated forms of birth control, we, we have million-year-old genes and floating around in a female brain and body. And so I felt that the answer that worked for me, which was an understanding of biology and human nature and anthropological studies that, that show universal kinds of themes in, in, in the way we treat sex and, and gender. Uh, so my notion was, well, one, write something that will give this perspective uh, to the reader. And when I turn that evolutionary eye in the second half of the book onto our modern day, here come, the title comes from the fact that it's my personal sense that men have been marginalized in our society, that we're not getting enough out of them, that uh, that they've been pushed aside in an effort to bring equality to women, the pendulum perhaps uh, having swung a bit too far in my, my own personal view. Uh, and so this uh, uh, thought I had really was that men, I'm looking for a dramatic title, men are disposable. If, if I had a second title, it would be the second thing that I see in, uh, in our contemporary culture, and that is, you know, that women are really overburdened, and, and I'm especially uh, uh, mindful of that with a single working mother, a woman who is not married, whether she's just conceived as a single woman, uh, you know, bringing up a child, uh, running a business or, or working for somebody else uh, into this maelstrom of, of strange 21st century dating, having to get to the gym to be to look like a hottie. Uh, it's a tremendous burden that, that, that women have taken on. 
So that would have been the second title. Quite as catchy as the disposable male would have been something like terribly overburdened single working mother. <laughs> right. um, so that, that's a kind of a snapshot of, of the book. And as it, there's, there's much time spent on a lot of fun things like where do our fantasies, the sexual fantasies come from? Uh, you know, where did, uh, when did we sort of stand up on the, on the, uh, out on the, the savanna and walk on two feet? How did our brains develop? Uh, what are the specialties between men and women that evolved over time? Uh, and, and I try to uh, give my, keep my readers uh, enjoying themselves a little bit. I learned a long time ago as, a, as an academic that if you can keep people uh, sort of amused and enjoying themselves, they'll sit there in the chair while they're downloading uh, what it is, you know, you have to, to tell them. So, so that's really how it came about, and that's a, a sort of snapshot of what it's about. So do you think if we went back to sort of the... the uh, June Cleaver days of the 1950s, was that our sweet spot as couples cohabitating together? Was that, is that kind of the, the place where it worked better for us? I think, yeah, I think that's, that's a very astute observation. I, I think that that is exactly the case. Although I, I'm at risk of being thought of as some sort of a relic, I mean, the reality is that, that post-war period was just kind of majestic. It was a peaceful time in the world. Uh, uh, in the military, the men were coming home. They, they were supported by the government to get an education and, and uh, uh, buy a home and build a family. And that, that sort of epoch, I think, we are going to look back on, uh, if we haven't already, we're going to look back on that truly as a sort of a, just a, a majestic period of time. Uh, the world has gotten extraordinarily complicated since then. And... Uh, uh, I, I don't think we'll ever get back to those days, but I, I, I think that uh, if most people understood how pleasurable those days were, uh, you know, I, I think that the interest in them would be a lot greater. You know, the trend is away from sort of harsh feminism, and uh, there's, there's a lot of sentiment, and I get familiar on this account, too. Uh, you know, for, you know what, it, it's, we don't have to be hard-charged, uh, you know, worker ants in this household. And in the overall bargain between men and women uh, of building a family and having a good life and providing for your latter years and, and having an, an enriched experience, part of that task maybe goes a little bit more to women and, and, and the sort of bring home the bacon part goes a little bit more to men. And I think that this is really truly remains the goal of a lot of modern, very sophisticated uh, young families. Yeah. I always wondered if we could peer into June and Ward Cleaver's bedroom. If they were having happier sex lives back then, they didn't talk about it as much back then. But if they were, because, you know, now we hear women just saying, I'm just too tired, you know, I've got these three kids. By the time I get dinner and the dishes and the emails and the blah, 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 I'm just too tired. And so I'm wondering if back in the 1950s they were having better sex or they were having, people had more energy because they had their defined roles of, you know, whatever they, you know, had to do. Yeah, no, I I think it's an interesting sort of observation. I would guess, Marie, that uh, top of my head that they were doing it more, but not maybe as well. Huh, yeah. Because they didn't have all the uh, porn and manuals to do it so well. (laughs) Well, the, and the sophisticated, you know, commentators like yourself out there that are informing people and, and making people feel comfortable with these perfectly human and natural functions. 
And uh, that's one of the things I talk about, too, in the book. I mean, a perfect example is pornography. I mean, it, it, it's shallow, it's visual, but it, but it gets men's blood boiling. And it's basically because men, the male sexual role is, you know, it's just real simple. You know, get in there and plant that seed. And women are, no, they like a good-looking guy, but nowhere near as, as, you know, triggered by these fairly shallow emotional, uh, 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 visual kinds of stimuli. And that's kind of, that's why we had 8,000 strip joints with women taking their clothes off and three with men taking their clothes off. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly normal, perfectly natural. I had a reader of the book uh, write to me about an incident. He said, I, I went into a, I was at a convention in Mexico City, and he went into a strip joint with his pal. And when the notion first came up, he thought, oh, God, I don't know, man, I am married, whatever. Anyway, he goes to the strip joint, and he doesn't sit on the runway right close up. They, they sit in a booth somewhere, and they're, and, and they're having this business conversation. And every now and then, a gorgeous creature wanders by on the runway, and he, and he said, I didn't feel like I was like a bad guy. <laughs> I was just appreciating gorgeous, you know, female form. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and yet, and women go for the romance novels because they put sex in context, and, 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 and there's, you know, a powerful, strong, attractive male sweeping them off their feet and, and discovering that load of passion that is deeply hidden that's only going to be available for that, for that night on a white charger. So uh, we, we need to understand that these are normal things, and there's nothing wrong uh, with that kind of, of circumstance. Right, right. Uh, you are tuned into the chat room on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are on with Michael Gilbert, author of The Disposable Mail. Dana, do you want to jump in? I wondered if Michael could give us some insight as to whether the decline of men is due to the increasingly social nature of the world and that men aren't necessarily gifted in the area of emotions. Um, that's a very uh, good question, and it's it's a, it's a very much an element in what's going on. Women uh, have have more um, uh, collegial capacities; they're service oriented, uh, and the, the, they're <clears throat> they're just as delicate a hand, maybe more delicate a hand, on the keyboard of modern commerce. And the reality is that the male jobs, uh, particularly in the mid and lower strata. Uh, are, are the jobs that are disappearing, and that's why in this last great near depression that we had, uh, you know, many more men than women were losing their job. Uh, I, you know, when I call in to complain on something, which I do rarely, but when I do, I always get a woman. And if I ran a business, you know, and my responsibility was handing complaints, you know, it's just so much more pleasant than experience. And and this is these are these are capacities that you know that I think are now stressed in our modern culture. Uh, men began to lose control with the arrival of, of the, the modern gun. You know that suddenly you know uh, the physical capacity to overwhelm was gone, and and the technology now uh, you know a woman is equally well put a finger on a you know a, a trigger on a gun as as a man. So. Uh, so I think that's, that's absolutely correct. We, we socially and, and culturally and maybe most importantly economically, we've moved into a sphere where female capacities are more valued and, and, and succeed better. Uh, just by way of example, uh, you know, how people 
one of the things I mentioned in the book, one of the myriad of sort of little uh, you know, uh, uh, facts of interest, is that when men and women are listening to conversations, two conversations at the same time, one coming in each ear, women hear parts of both, and men tune one out and hear only one of the voices. And this, this capacity for a more generalized, a, a wider uh, sort of sensory range that women have, all of these are now are now in uh, in great in great value. What interestingly hasn't changed is most is right at the top, and at some of the more aggressive parts of, of business, and that's where male strength still uphold. The risk taker, uh, the, the kind of boldness that that men can often bring to their to a modern job and lead corporations into battle. That's where the masculine talents, I think, are 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 the, are the most useful, and that's why I think women still haven't quite made it to the very top of the glass ceiling, or, or through that ceiling to the to the very top of, of corporate America. Um, but it, it's very much true, and, and this shift from uh, product to service uh, is is also a male to sort of female switch. So I think yes, that's very much the case. Men are are under siege, and one of the reason why is that modern technology has, in a sense, drawn away from their power. Is it your sense that um, marriage is just becoming sort of an antiquated institution that perhaps should go away? You know, it's, it is unquestionably uh, antiquated and ragged, and it's under all manner of pressure. The original notion is, look, uh, I don't think we're actually built to be married to one person for the rest of our lives. I really do. Even even adopting a female perspective, it's hard to imagine with current longevity when we're living into our 80s uh, that you're going to be together with the same person for 60 years. That, it's kind of stunning, and when you see it, I'm I'm tremendously impressed. But the, re- the, the real reason for it was, first of all, contractually to bring families together in a way where you know, where, what happens with the kids if there isn't a marriage? And where, where do the various responsibilities and, and, and benefits lie? Uh, so, and, and, and also, of course, largely for the purpose of providing a vessel for the raising of children, which takes in our modern culture 15 or 18 years before they're mature enough to leave the nest. So you've got to cover that ground. And marriage was the institution that came along to do it. And it actually preceded religion, by the way, uh, and was sanctified by the various religions, uh, and is now under siege. And uh, I, I don't know what what its future, where, where it lies. We currently have 40% of children being born out of wedlock, heavily uh, towards some of the minority communities, but it's still a staggering number. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, 50% divorce rate. We haven't been able to do much to improve it. We, we're, we're living in a culture of, you know, easy diversions. Uh, I don't know. It's a challenge. A young couple filled with, you know, uh, love and enthusiasm and 25 and he's 27, looking out over the next 50, 60 years, boy, that's, that's <laughs> It is, uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you put all this in the context of evolution, you know, evolutionarily, we live to 35. And so if you, you know, if you start in on this path at 14 or whatever age they did, you know, 14 years together or 15 years together seems like 
a doable number. But you're right, 60 years together seems, you know, daunting. Yeah, and, and of course, we, we, we in, again, in this modern world with all of the facilities for learning and, you know, young couples move in their own direction and they move away. Would you be interested in the same person that you're interested in at 25? Would you think you'd be interested in the same person at 45? I suspect not. So uh, I don't know. On the other hand, I don't know what else we do here because the notion, you know, marriage is at the center of family. And we haven't figured out a better social unit than the family. And it's, and, and, and it, you know, it's already bizarre. You know, somebody's stepmother's divorced uncle shows up at the, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner or what have you. And the family connections now are becoming so, you know, somewhat bizarre because of these breakups. But, uh, but if, we, if we let go of marriage or we, or we tear it apart in a whole host of ways or we penalize it through the tax code or something silly, then, then what happens to family? And, and does that mean that, that family structure is going to start to come apart? And, um, you know, I, I call one of the sections of the book, you know, water is thinner than, than, uh, than uh, blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense that the modern families now, are, they seem to be families of interest. And here, this ties into my work, I'm a fellow at a think tank at USC at the Annenberg School, called the Center for the Digital Future. And, uh, you know, the, the, the digital worlds that we're evolving towards now, we, in our studies, uh, people report that their, their online relationships are just as important in many respects, and sometimes more, than their offline relationships. Wow. So with all, with all, of, the, with all of the astonishing attacks that are coming on to the family, you know, the marriage aspect is so fundamental to its core. Uh, that if we lose that too, I, I think you may be right. I think marriage may, you know, may go the way. I think it'll. I think the upper classes will continue to do it, um, but uh, because they need to contractually, uh, it's just too complicated a world. But 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 in in the middle and lower strata of our society, I think the marriage indeed may disappear. I'm always intrigued by the European model of this, which is far less marriage. You know, marriage is not a big deal in I, several countries in Europe. Uh, they they have children together and they, you know, they procreate and they live together. But marriage, it seems like when you mention it to, you know, certain segments of the population over there, they're like, why would you, why would you do that? You know, it's, it's just unnecessarily complicated. Um, and then, you know, the, the French um, disposition towards sort of, serial, you know, long-term affairs outside of your marriage, whatever they're, whatever they're doing over there. Um, you know, I always wonder if they have it right or if, or if they're just crazy or if they're, you know, 20 years behind us and they're living like in the U.S. in the 70s or something. No, I, I think they're, they're ahead of us, for better or worse. Um, I think that, that they're more sophisticated. I think that the French and the, the way they, they wink at uh, affairs, particularly by their male politicians, and even female ones. Uh, I think uh, I think that's part of a culture that is more uh, Dionysian than ours. That is more indulgent of, of life's pleasures. I find America a place that's Calvinistic. Yeah. Uh, there's a rigidity, a moral rigidity, based on what, for whatever reason, on religion. I think, and and and, and its power here. When you, when you look at the studies here of what percentage of the American population believes 
in in the literal Bible and rejects evolution. <laughs> the numbers are up in the 40, 40% level, 45%. Yeah. That number in Europe is under 10% who believe in a literal Bible who yeah. believe who, and, and who then largely adopt uh, an evolutionary perspective. So I just think they're more progressive. They're, more, they're where we're headed. And, and the, the first ones you refer to, the Scandinavian nations especially, they're ahead of us in, in, in gender sort of uh, maneuvering. Uh, but I'm not, I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean better. They may be ahead of us in the sense of, indeed, family is disappearing. Right, right. But about, I mean, really, how, how do we organize society if not by family? Now, we're driven to family connection. We, we're powered by genetic sharing. You know, you, you have 50% of the genes of your brother. Uh, you, you feel you feel that power. We feel it all the way down to first cousins. And the reason we don't feel it beyond first cousins, the reason we don't feel family beyond that, is because the, the gene sharing gets down to a very low level. It's much like like a stranger. But down to first cousin, you know, there's there's a powerful connection genetically. But how do we? How is this going to manifest itself if if marriage uh, integrates and families start? lose their shape. I, I don't know. It's a brave new world. Yeah, yeah. We need to get kids out of the house earlier. You know, they, they need to be like birds where we have them for a year and then they move on because I, I think that would make everything easier. It, it really would. The, you know, the, the traditional, uh, at, at three years old, you talked about lifespan at 35. This is why we have the bar mitzvah at 13 okay. because when you look to 35, by 13 you need to be grown up. And and, and in most of the time we spent on the savannah when our genes were being put in place, uh, by the time a child was three, it was being shunted out of the nest. It was probably being looked after by an, an older sibling. Uh, so the, the notion of, you know, after about two, three years, drop the kid off, and this, this has deep uh, biological and deep evolutionary roots. Right, right. You are tuned into the chat room on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are on with Michael Gilbert, author of The Disposable Male. You can find more information out about Michael and his book at thedisposablemail.com. Dana, you want to jump back in? I did. Uh, I wondered if Michael would give us his um, take on whether the reason why families and marriages are declining is because they were institutions built to kind of um, help support each other physically, but now that we've kind of gotten that handled and we need emotional support, they f- they're not able to uh, do much good for us. Uh, I, I think this is the point well taken. It, it, it is a, it's an artificial construct, kind of like the parapet around a building. And, uh, and you're right. I think it's, it's, marriage is imposed on human nature. The notion of wanting to spring free after three or four years uh, doesn't work when it takes 15 years to raise a kid. And so marriage is, a, is an imposition on a more rambling nature that we have as a way of kind of keeping us honest and focused towards child-rearing, uh, which it, if nature has a single goal, it is for us to perpetuate ourselves. So, yes, and it's a fairly flimsy. You know, we talk about marriage as being old, but the reality is it's only about 5,000 years old. And uh, uh, so it, when you set that against the fact that we've been upright on two feet for about five billion years, <laughs> it really means that just in the last second 
uh, you know, has marriage suddenly appeared on the horizon. And in a way, your point can be drawn larger, which is that much of society, much of civilization, is a, is a sort of overlay over our nature. And, and every now and then, it doesn't work. And, and crime, for instance, is an example uh, that just breaks out, uh, even though we're civilized. And so sometimes that, you know, that, that civilian civilized overlay is, is very, very thin. Witness places like, you know, well, anywhere in the world where there's, you know, warfare going on uh, and killing going on. Uh, you know, the thin veneer, the, the, the rape and plunder and, and, and gratuitous murdering of people uh, that goes on regularly every single day as we're talking here uh, speaks to the, the power of these underlying drives and the flimsiness, of, uh, so often the flimsiness of the social institutions, the cultural institutions that we construct to try and frame and hold and direct those uh, fairly deep, human drive. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau has much to answer for. He's a brilliant thinker in the Renaissance, but he is the father of the tabula rasa, the idea of the white slate, that, that we're born completely a, an open slate for society to pencil in uh, the values that we want, and, and this will generate blissful societies of blissful people. Nothing could be further from the truth. We arrive with a profound genetic package and deep, deep evolutionary drives. And what we need to do is honor those drives, recognize them, indeed celebrate them, and use them. And this comes down to, for instance, the way we want to specialize the sexes. It really is okay if men do a little bit more of the hunting and women do a little more of the gathering. And in my own personal view, that's where happiness and pleasure lie. So uh, I'm so happy you raised this point because it tracks back into this notion that it's the, the idea that, that we're social constructs and that differences between the sexes come down to some amusing differences in our plumbing systems, this is, this is bizarre. There are deep and powerful differences, much as we have in common, there's deep and powerful differences between the sexes, and we want to celebrate that. We want to acknowledge it. We want to use it. And by the way, we carry within us the seeds of the other side. Men have uh, uh, feminine instincts, especially as they age, and their testosterone levels off a little bit. And women, as, as they age, and estrogen levels uh, draw back, uh, take on, uh, have a certain masculine capacity that they should learn to enjoy and hopefully are in relationships where they can. So, to my mind, individual happiness and, and contentment, as well as cultural contentment, is a function of honoring this brilliant, natural, biological, evolutionary, uh, anthropological heritage and, uh, and living... Uh, in, in, in honest and, and true connection to it. That means, among other things, having a good time because um, to get playful about it, you know, sex is here uh, for us to procreate. 
That actually might be a good segue to uh, to turn to the sex conversation. Do you have any uh, objections to that, Dana? No. <laughs> I knew Dana wouldn't have any objections. <laughs> Who objects to turning the conversation to sex? No one. Exactly. Uh, you, you mentioned something earlier about what informs our sexual fantasies, where they come from, why we have them. Um, talk a little bit more about that. Well, the, the point is that they're, they're biologically and evolutionarily based. We have a tendency to uh, enjoy, uh, well, one example is menstruation. Uh, when women are uh, ovulating, they show more uh, of their skin, they wear more jewelry, they uh, put on more makeup, uh, and that's happening because they're at their most tumescent uh, uh, stage. They're, they're, they're at their most interested. In nature, these signs are generally very vivid, and, and males know exactly what's going on. Happily, we've camouflaged that in our culture. Uh, but male fantasies of dominance, for instance, uh, usually at the, they're at or very near the point of, of ejaculation of orgasm. Uh, there's a sense of wanting to pinion the female. This is extraordinary, maybe the most common male fantasy. And again, this may well be because the squirming female is less likely to receive the sperm at, at the egg. Whereas if she's is sort of immobilized briefly and presumably voluntarily, uh, the, the, there's a, a likelier chance for reproduction. Hmm. Rape fantasies amongst women are very common, mm-hmm. uh, extremely common. And, and, but, but you have to kind of look at them a, a little more closely because it's not about the male being in control. It's actually about the female being in control and the male out of control. Hmm. And uh, there's there's always a sort of background sense of, of mutual consent that this is something of a of a performance. But these are very common and has to do about being taken, maybe being taken by the strongest male sperm deliverer. Use that phrase. Hmm. Uh, you know, so a lot of what goes on with us sexually. Why this is slightly off the subject, but it's my favorite strange fact of the week. But why is it that that in women's dorms? The, the menstruation lines up. Yeah, why is it? I know. Because, because what, what's happening is they're lining up behind the alpha female. Huh. If they're all ovulating at different times, she has competition. But if they're all ovulating at the same time, she, presumably, the alpha female, will get the attention. Interesting. Now, this is a, a, a bizarre, you know, I'm going, as I said, slightly off subject here, but that's why it happens. That's interesting because wouldn't it be more the case evolutionarily that you would want women to ovulate all over the place so that the guy could just go down the down the hallway? Sure, of course. All month long. <laughs> of course, but we're talking about a female dorm and not a and not a co-ed dorm, and we're, we're, so I'm just you know gotcha. when a group of females are living together, uh, of, 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 you know premenopause age, their 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 periods line up. Uh, now the male, yes, the male wants um, male wants uh, uh, a, a wide selection. He wants he, he, not so much for the sex, but because he wants to plant his seed in each and every female, so that they're impregnated and 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 carry his genes forward. Right. I'm reminded of a little funny line I sort of cute, becoming much more more important as I age in life. This is the young bull and the old bull. 
looking down a corral of many, many lovely, gorgeous female cows, and they're kind of young bulls, you know, sort of worked up, and uh, finally he turns to the old bull and says, hey, let's run down there and get one. And the old bull says, son, let's walk down and get them all. <laughs> so, yeah, that, men would like to see the ovulation taking place in that dorm, but they, first of all, have to get access to it. Right, right. Very interesting. I love that. I love that. Danny, you want to jump in? Yeah, he mentioned evolutionary biology, and I wondered if he could give us uh, some details of what life was like before, you know, organized agriculture, where, from what I read, women being promiscuous was kind of a survival skill. Yes. Uh, we kind of, well, that's a great dividing point, of course, is when we settled into communities and agriculture, we discovered that we could have the plant sort of replant, and Prior to that, uh, the situation was uh, uh, less um, less ordered. You know, the evolutionists and writers like Richard Dawkins write about this, and they'll talk about females who are promiscuous. What they're trying to do is get the best genetic load, and by sort of forcing a kind of male competition, uh, for their uh, attention, you know, uh, is in a way a survival instinct maybe because it, 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 uh, uh, it keeps the angry or hungry males at, at bay. But more likely it's, a, it's an effort to enhance genetic uh, capacity. I want the best, strongest, most attractive male. And that's why that plumage that you see all the time, uh, the, that, you know, the, the male... Pheasant, the, the, the plumage is so breathtaking. This is a horrible burden for that animal, but it sure impresses, impresses the girls. And it, it says to the female, this male is powerful. This male is well-formed. We have, for instance, and this comes down to sex, we have a definite attraction to symmetry. And the reason that we're attracted to symmetry in people and put off sometimes by asymmetry is because we see it as a kind of healthy download of, of, of genetics. This is, this is a healthy person by reason of the fact that she is sort of, you know, roughly equal on each side of her body. Uh, this is yet another example of evolution. So, yes, there, and in some, uh, you know, species that we're aware of, uh, promiscuity on the part of the female is part of the, part of the, the routine. The female, in almost every species, holds the cards. She's bringing up with some stress one egg a month, and one 16-year-old male's ejaculation can service about a half the planet in female. There's an equation there that's important, There's a, and that's why that's another aspect of disposability in men. So, uh, and, you know, there, there are regular ads on Craigslist for an egg, please, from a tall person with a high SAT for $10,000 an egg, okay? And so, uh, so these, uh, you know, uh, kinds of behavior by female in, in different species, the bonobos, who are not our closest relative, they're second closest. Unfortunately, our closest relatives are the African chimpanzee. But, but, but the second closest are the bonobos, and they are polymorphous. 
and have a heavy homosexual component as well. Hmm. Uh, so it just depends on your setting. It depends on the dynamics of, of how, where you're living, uh, uh, the scarcity of food, the, the male hierarchies that develop in almost all primates. Uh, all of these are factors. And in my mind, if you can gain this perspective, if you can get an evolutionary perspective, it's just interesting. It's interesting to see it in a boardroom. It's interesting to see it in the bedroom. Uh, and and so, so what I like to say to my readers is, this is, you know, this is another way of looking at life. This is a scientific creation story, and this is how things look from an evolutionary perspective. Add this to all the other instinctive ways and, and knowledgeable ways that you use to get through life. So what should women be threatened by sexually in their, in their partners? You know, I assume that strip clubs, porn, um, some of those things should not pose a real threat to women because, you know, men are stimulated by visual. That doesn't mean they're going to run off with these women, obviously. So where should women draw the line with men um, sexually on, you know, where kind of giving them the latitude to, you know, to be who they are evolutionarily, but, you know, stick around for the, uh, stick around for the marriage. Uh, do you have opinions on, on what's okay and what's not okay? Uh, yeah, the first part of your question again was, um, uh, sort of porn. Oh, well, I, 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 was, I was drawing I, the I, lines I, for you, but yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I had an experience a few years ago when I was writing the book <clears throat> that I just, that you're speaking directly to about what women should be worried about. And this was a young woman calling in to uh, a show much like this, um, a feminist writer uh, who had just published a book, uh, an, interesting, an interesting author. And the caller <clears throat> was concerned. She said, I have a fabulous marriage. I love my husband. We're talking about children. And the other day I came across a, a cache on his computer of porn. And she said, I don't understand it. And she said, I, uh, you know, is there something wrong with me? I, am I inadequate? Is, is there something wrong with my husband? I mean, we have a great sex. I just don't get it. And I, I, I wanted to reach through the phone line and say, young lady, there's nothing wrong with you. There's almost certainly nothing wrong with your marriage. And there's almost certainly nothing wrong with your husband. Now, the feminist answer to her was, well, you know, men are socialized, you know, to, to look at women object, as objects, and we have to change that, you know, maybe with some therapy, your husband could come. That's just ridiculous stuff. <laughs> right. And, and, and so, so uh, now, when, if, if a man is constantly with pornography and not with his real life partner, I, that would certainly be a line to cross. But, but when you come at this issue of where, how should women accommodate and how should they not, there's two levels, or at least I'm, I'm assuming two levels to your question. One is, you know, maybe how deep into the relationship should they uh, accommodate the male drive for, for coitus? Right. On day four, five, nine, or day two, I, you know, I, at what point, and, I, and this, you know, women have to sense this, but they should men through a bit of a test. They should really, you know, see whether he's going to come back for the third or fourth date. Uh, and then they should be mindful of the fact that, that, that you know, they hold a, a treasured kind of heritage and, and, uh, and they don't look at sex the same way as men. And indeed, they may feel cheap 
the morning after, and the man is just walking through the door with his tail between his legs looking for, you know, another bedroom. So, but as to male fetish and as to if men, you know, are, are there extremes uh, of sexual behavior, the answer is yes. I, I think every man is a fetishist. I think every man has a little happily, a little twist in him, and it's probably usually fairly benign uh, uh, and can be accommodated. Uh, I think, and I also feel that, that, that any act that reasonably leads to, to uh, intercourse uh, and that where both parties are happily there and, and voluntarily there, that that too is acceptable. Uh, there's really nothing out of range as long as both people in the room are, are not minors and, and both there willingly and, and happily. Uh, but, but, but there are, there is extremity primarily in males uh, and there is a, there are boundaries, and I think that women really this is where they have to come to consult another knowledge that women have, and men too, and that is instinctive knowledge, instinctual knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that most women kind of know at some point that you know this isn't in the normal aspect of sexuality. I, I, I'm not enjoying this. Uh, I don't feel comfortable. Then they ought not to do it. Right. How would you advise a daughter, if, I don't know if you have kids or if you have a daughter, but um, say you have a 16-year-old daughter, are, is there advice you would give her now in terms of, in, in terms of all of it, in terms of getting married, in terms of, you know, how to approach a man, how to, you know, <laughs> how not to approach a man, um, you know, waiting on sex, what age is appropriate, kind of all that stuff. Right. You know, this is now... Women used to be married at 13, 14, or not, if not married, taken. Yeah. Uh, and now they're, they're coming of age at 11 or 12, and they're not getting married uh, on average until about 25 or 26. This is a long, long time to manage sexuality, a budding sexuality, something new and scary and wonderful and fun and, and dangerous. And uh, I think it starts with the notion of, this, again, is one of the reasons that we have to look to nature is to make girls understand they're not boys, that sex isn't the same, that they, that, that they need to have a, a modicum of self-respect about where they put their intimate attentions uh, that, that, and, that, and that there's responsibility that comes with the joy of sexuality. And I think you have to start with that. I mean, you, you, know, you can't uh, just sort of put, you know, like a... a you know, rules around it. You have a deadline. You have to be in by such and so. The point is, your children are going to go out into that world. Their peer group is now at least as important to them as you, in, in many respects. Uh, and so, if, if there isn't the underlying conveyance to them of a sense of responsibility about femininity and womanliness, and the notion that sex isn't quite the same for men and women, and that women need to be considerate of a whole host of issues that don't necessarily affect men. Uh, I think that that's a very big place to start and, and, and point out that life is long. There's ample time to, to learn these things and, and, and accommodate yourself to sex and to intimacy, uh, to, to propagate the notion that intimacy is at its best. Sex is the most fun when it's in the context of a, a loving, trusting relationship. And uh, the other thing I would advise a mother of a 16-year-old daughter is to be forgiving because you're going to have to forgive. <laughs> right. Life is long. That's true. <laughs> Life is long. It's long. Uh, you're going to have to forgive. She's going to dabble in, in 
and marijuana and drugs, and she's going to probably have sex with the wrong guy and not really good for her, and it's, it's, those things are going to happen. You want to keep the lines of communication open. You want to make sure that your daughter feels comfortable coming to you and talking to you and so that you're not going to get reproval or, or disciplined by telling you that she has a problem or she doesn't understand something. So there's that, too, I think, is to make sure you have an open communication. Right, right. You are tuned into the chat room. Our guest tonight is Michael Gilbert. The uh, book is The Disposable Mail. You can find more out about Michael and The Disposable Mail at thedisposablemail.com. Dana, you want to jump in again? Yes, Michael. Do you know of any research or publications that delve into the difference between men and women in that men, generally speaking, can't walk around all day with an erection, but a woman... Uh, theoretically could walk around kind of lubricated all day and it right. kind of it, she can get a sexual kind of not attraction but conditioning to things that men just don't you know men are so superior uh, women are so superior to men in the, in the sexual context and you're putting your finger on it they can nurse a fantasy all day I gets an erection and he's got to study or he's got to do something he sort of has to go and deal with it uh, it, 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 the female experience is so much more subtle. She has twice the erogenous zones that a man does. They're activated in ways intellectually that men don't can fathom. We're, we're, males are sexual pygmies, <laughs> but that's the case. And let's fess up to it. It's just you know now we we rise above this. Uh, one of the glories of aging, and there are many. Although there's also curses. But one of the, the glories of it for a man is you get past that testosterone rush that when you're 16 years old, you can't, you can't get off the subway or the bus because you have a heart on and everyone's going to see, and you have to go too, too past your exit to calm down. This is not an experience that a 45-year-old man will have. And happily, man, I call it, this section of the book, I call it the tyranny of testosterone. It's tyrannical. What makes young boys and young men do all the jerky, stupid, dumb stuff they do? Uh, and so, uh, again, if, if we live in a fantasy world of men and women, if we think that our adolescent males are doing the same thing on the Internet as our adolescent females, we're out of our tree. We're just, we, we, we've lost touch with reality. And, and, and so, therefore, this, this cultural uh, scaffolding that... We're the same. Boys and girls are the same. And girls can become pilots and boys can become, you know, nannies. Uh, it's silly. It's foolish. It's fighting nature. And it's making boys feel uncomfortable. I get mail from boys saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I understand why I, you know, masturbate four times a day. Okay? I, I, I realize it's not maybe a terrific thing, but I'm a human being. Yeah. And, and, and this takes me back to a conversation I had in college a long time ago with a young man who was sort of the first Roman Catholic who I'd met. And I said, well, sex without creation is He said, right. I said, so therefore masturbation must be a sin because, after all, it has no real purpose. He said, he said yeah, it's a sin. And I said, do you masturbate? He said, yeah, of course. He said, I'm only human. So this is the side of us we need to get a grip on. We need to let, loose, let go of the right-wing ideologues telling us that we mustn't, you know, 
do sex except to have to procreate. And we and we need to get rid of maybe left wing, uh, you know, social engineers who want to build a, a society of perfect, you know, human equal. Uh, the whole charm of our world is the masculine and feminine energy. So, um, so hopefully, uh, through the good offices of uh, your show and my work, uh, we'll uh, educate people about the fact that these natural issues are, are, are joyous and wonderful and something to, uh, to celebrate. I used to have this uh, Mormon friend when I was in law school, and, you know, they have the, they have the Mormon underwear... I'm not here to disparage any religion, but anyway, you know, so they they have the underwear, and then he was talking about masturbation. He said, I literally tie myself, which I think would just be a bigger turn-on, so I didn't understand this at all, but he literally tied himself up at night. I don't know how you, I can understand how you could tie one a hand, but I don't understand how the other one goes. But anyway, he had some complicated system to prevent himself from masturbating, and I, I was like, you, that's crazy. I mean, how how much are you fighting nature to, you know, tie yourself up at night with this crazy undergarment system. But anyway, that's... I, I know, I know. It's a form of self-flagellation and punishment. And uh, this is, to me, I, I look at that kind of thing, I just shake my head and wonder. I mean, I, I, I just don't get it. I just don't understand it. And where does that energy go? I figured it had to be it's his own reward, right? I mean, it sounded, as he was describing it, I'm like, that sounds incredibly kinky to me. So I assume you're getting... You're getting something out of this beyond, you know, feeling good about yourself. But yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. I think that this is a, a rigorous uh, attention to a, a very faulty belief about, uh, you know, human nature. You know, there's a level on which I think that almost all human pathology is a function of our dis- our disturbance from nature our own individual human nature, and nature nature. Uh, we, we think nature is something to visit on the weekend. We think it's nature because we have a dog. We're living with another species. But the reality is that this divorce from nature, and that's a male enterprise going back a long time, is I think at the seat of a lot of human you know, screw-up-in-ness. And the notion of a 15- or 16-year-old boy binding himself so that he, so that he wouldn't put his hand on his penis... Uh, and ejaculates uh, is staggering. And, and where that drive and that energy goes as it inverts back into his psyche is, you know, is, is stunning to comprehend. Yeah, right, right. Sadly, we have drawn down on our time. But, uh, Michael, tell us all the places we can find you. I know we can find you at thedisposablemail.com. Can we follow you on Facebook and Twitter and those sorts of places? Uh, not really. I'm uh, I'm uh, not active on those. I'm act- I have a uh, profile on LinkedIn. Okay. I've I've sort of stayed away from those two. I I think I have a an account at Twitter, but I don't. I'm not active on it. However, uh, the book site that you mentioned also our our uh, center, the Center for the Digital Future, it's www.digitalcenter.org, and. Uh, we're just now going through a uh, redoing of a pretty crummy website at the moment, but a new one will be up within the next few weeks. However, there's enough there for people to understand a little bit about what we're doing. So uh, digitalcenter.org or the disposablemail.com. That is fantastic. Michael Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. 
That was Michael Gilbert. The book is The Disposable Mail. You can find him... New uh, cards will not be available for sale. You can find him there at thedisposablemail.com. That's all the time we have for today. We will be right back here with you next Friday night, 5 o'clock. I haven't mentioned this, uh, but the chat room, unfortunately, we've decided to go uh, off the air at least for a quarter and sort of... Uh, reevaluate our uh, our lives and show so next week will be our last show with you friday night at five o'clock we're going to be on with julie albright who's a psychiatrist a psychologist at uh usc talking about internet dating so that will be great join us next friday night at five and stay tuned now for andy vasoy and coming up midnight anthem is on and uh thanks so much for joining us have a great weekend Check it out while I'm the master of balance With multiple talents I provide the landscape, baby You provide the challenge I've been broken down and out And look at the sound that I'm drowning out I'm around the town and I'm roundabout And it's better than a kick in your freaking mouth These words might scare you Make you tremble and double dare you Now we're always learning Always listening and very burning you're not checking the resume, two thumbs down is what they say. Don't get down.